0: Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and the sacraments. Uh, If you were listening a couple of weeks ago, you might have heard an interview with a British poetess, and convert from hardcore atheism, Sally Reed, who was on the show to, in part, talk about her newest book, which is called The Annunciation, which is a sort of a catechesis about the Catholic faith that she originally developed for her, for her uh, daughter at the time of her daughter's first communion. The full title is Annunciation, A Call to Faith in a Broken World and it's published by Ignatius Press. And on that show, you can hear Sally Reed talking about that book. But she was on a couple of years ago to give her witness testimony, which she did not give a couple of weeks ago, since that was not the purpose of that appearance, and also because she had already done so on an earlier show. But I got a lot of positive feedback about her participation in the show a couple of weeks ago, and I thought it would be worthwhile to replay her, the, the first, her first appearance on Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, in which she tells her very beautiful and moving witness testimony, conversion story, from being a very hardcore, secular, fallen, atheist young woman to being very passionately Catholic. So that's what I am doing today. So, in a moment or two, I will turn to the recording of that show, which originally aired in 2015, October 17th, 2015. And uh, because of the nature of the show, we will not be taking any calls today, uh, but just using the time to uh, listen to her witness testimony, which I'm sure you'll enjoy. So, with that, we will go to the earlier show, and I will come back to just wrap up um, at, after the end of her witness testimony. So again, I hope you enjoy it. Here's Sally Reed.
1: You're listening to Radio Maria, a Christian voice in your home. We now bring you Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism, with Roy Shoman.
0: Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome again to our show on Radio Maria that celebrates the uh, Jewish roots of the Catholic faith, or seen the other way around, the fulfillment, the completion of all of the promise and potential of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. This show, until very recently, had the title Salvation is from the Jews, A title that, on the one hand, had going for it the fact that it was a direct quote by Jesus himself, or of Jesus himself, in John chapter 4, verse 22, when he meets a Samaritan woman at the well. He says, at one point, salvation is from the Jews. So, I thought it made a kind of neat title for that reason, also because it was the title of my first book which I called Salvation is from the Jews for the same reason. But it had the slight danger that somebody who didn't see it in the context might think it meant that um, uh, you had to be Jewish to be saved, which, of course, would be a horrible misunderstanding. So we changed the title to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, again, to try to show the continuity, the fact that Judaism and the Catholic Church are not two separate religions, But really, it's one story um, that consists of two phases. The first phase, to prepare for the incarnation of the Son of God as a man. uh, And the second phase, to uh, propagate the salvation that he brought throughout the whole world, throughout all peoples, through Christianity and through the Catholic Church and its sacraments. So it's really... Uh, Judaism is, you can think of it as pre-Messianic Christianity, and Christianity is post-Messianic Judaism. And so to try to capture that, uh, at least for now, the title is Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, because Jesus was the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the fulfillment of Judaism, and the turning point which turned Judaism into the Catholic Church and its sacraments. So it's the same show. I'm the same host. It's a new name. Uh, and the shows are, of course, still up on uh, archived on the website of Radio Maria if you want to listen to past shows, and also on my website, SalvationIsFromTheJews.com. And before I begin the show proper, let me just um, make a little note that I will be leading a pilgrimage to Israel, God willing, in April. Everything's been arranged, which will be around Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. It'll be a Catholic pilgrimage in the sense that we will visit all of the um, normal Catholic pilgrimage sites hallowed by the events that took place there during Jesus' life, like the institution of the Eucharist and the multiplication of the loaves and fishes and so forth and so on. But we will also visit some uh, Jewish holy sites, and some sites that show the um, typological foreshadowing of Christianity in the Jewish sacrament. So if you're interested in uh, joining me on that pilgrimage, there's information on that also on the homepage of my website, SalvationIsFromTheJews.com. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that one of my absolutely favorite things to do on the show is to have on a guest who is another grateful, uh, recent entrant into the Catholic Church, sometimes from Judaism, sometimes from uh, Protestantism, sometimes from atheism, to tell their witness testimony. And um, the problem, the only problem one has, being born and raised a faithful Christian or Catholic, is that you have nothing to compare it to, you have nothing to contrast it to, And very often, God has not had to work miraculously in your life to bring you where you are, although often he does anyway. But in the case of people who come in from radically different backgrounds, very typically, God is sort of forced to show his hand a little bit more dramatically. And therefore, these stories very often um, are very faith-building because they actually God was forced to use miracles or certainly uh, extraordinary experiences of consciousness and so forth in order to break through the wall of um, disbelief. So in that light, I have invited on the show a uh, a new, very new entrant into the Catholic Church uh, who came from an atheist background. Uh, I won't uh, presume to begin to tell her story, but I think think uh, that would be more appropriate for her to do so are you there Sally
1: I'm here yes
0: the reason I I know about Sally is that she wrote her witness testimony in a very very beautiful book and uh, the proof that it is an extraordinary book is that it was accepted for publication by Ignatius Press which is always a miracle (laughs) and it's it's a it's a very extraordinary book frankly, both in the story it tells and also in the uh, spirit in which it is written and in the spirit in which the story is told and the language in which the story is told because I'm I'm babbling, but Sally also is a quite accomplished poetess and I think that kind of comes across in her description of her journey. Anyway, back to you.
1: Okay, well, you know, it's true, I I was an atheist, and um, in the sense that I was really raised in a very atheist family. And I think, um, you know, in the secular world these days, um, people are often, well, especially in Britain, where where I'm from, people are brought up outside of faith. Uh, But that's not the same as being brought up as an atheist, because I think a lot of people in Britain are brought up outside of faith, but they have a kind of a wishy-washy notion that if they, you know, if they need God or they need a God, you know, they're there somewhere at some point, or God is what I can make him, or there is something out there. And I was brought up in a very rigorous, um, almost sort of intellectual atheism, where, you know, my father, as my father in particular, you know, really taught us that religion was evil and bogus. Um, You know, some of his allegations, you know, about stupidity in religion, you know, they're self-evident in the world. Um, and as a child, I was brought up you know to know Karl Marx and to um uh, i you know, quickly read Christopher Hitchens etc et etc et so I really was a an atheist um, and i had I was inquiring about religion in the sense that uh, I sensed from a very early age that if if a person was religious, then life was easier um, but no matter how tough things got as a young woman and when I was a psychiatric nurse in london um No matter how low I became when I lost my father, um, no matter how black, and even at times when I thought, you know, if only I could believe in God, it never happened. You know, it really didn't. I mean, and it was almost, um, you know, it's almost like the door was left open for God to a certain extent. But I think my defenses were so very high. And I also wonder that, I wonder whether God was almost um, saving himself for a particular point in my life. I think, I think I had to have lots of years as an an atheist to really look at what the world looks like without God. Because, you know, something that converts will always tell you is that suffering without God is very different from suffering with God. There's just no question. Um, You know, it's such a misconception that my family have that they think that religious people um, believe that suffering is taken away with God. And that's just not true. You still suffer but the suffering is completely transformed. It has meaning, it has beauty, and it has dignity. It's something that you do with Christ. It's it's very different. Um, so, so yes, kind of the atheist to the believer um, has been an enormous, enormous grace for me.
0: Well, let me ask you a question, but I'm also inviting you to tell me, uh, in the future, please shut up, Roy, and don't interrupt me with questions. So it's up to you. <laughs> um, but for the moment, I'll try this one, which is, um, uh, just give us a little bit of a picture of what the picture of Christians and people who believed in Christianity was when you were growing up. I mean, did you think they were like stupid, naive, well-meaning fools or, or what?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially because I'm from Britain where the Anglican church, um, was I'm not sure about now, but it was the kind of main church as I was growing up, and Anglicans you know in my house were seen largely as grinning idiots, you know just well meaning but very vapid and very intellectually void um the Catholic Church, I hardly dare tell you you know is really you know. <laughs>
0: Just like Monty Python, you know the Inquisition sketch or something.
1: Yeah, well, worse because you know evil. I mean, I know my brother married a Catholic actually a long time ago, and when my father was still alive, um, and when she had her children baptized um, Catholic, my father was really angry, and I was really angry, and we felt that it was a faith that had had unconscionable beliefs. I mean, wicked beliefs, really. And you know, it's, you know, as recently as as 2010, you know, before I converted, that was the year I converted. I believe that, um, you know, the church's writings on homosexuality and contraception and abortion were evil. I really did. And and again, I think I think that gives a person another perspective because when I when I talk to a person who's who's pro-choice, who believes in abortion, who's otherwise a good person, you know, a sound moral person. I don't perhaps judge them as perhaps others might, because I remember very clearly how I thought. You know? And I and I know that I wasn't I wasn't rotten, I was misguided, I was very misguided. And I think that there are, you know, even politicians out there who they think that they're thinking they think that they're believing and doing the right thing for women, especially male politicians. I think that they um they think that they're doing women a favour and they can't see that they're not. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's interesting how you it's good, you know, I, part of the reason I wrote the book so soon, because I, I did wonder whether to to write it, um, I wanted to be at that point in my conversion, because I still consider myself, of course, converting as we all are. Um, I wanted to be at that point where I could look back and and remember things vividly, how I felt as an atheist and how I thought. And and also have the excitement and, and the conviction of being a Catholic at the same time. Because I don't know in 10 years' time or 20 years' time whether I'll forget what being an atheist was like.
0: Well, that's a good reason to tell your witness testimony frequently because it keeps it fresh in your mind. Yeah. yeah. I I'm, I'm, I'm say that not literally joking. I, I find um, it's very, I'm always very grateful when I give my witness testimony because it brings back the, um, the reality of the world that I was in you know before my conversion, which yeah. um, actually reminds me of a I don't want to say one of my favorite quotes from your book, but certainly a, a, a quote that's stuck in my memory. Which I don't know what you were, perhaps late 20s. Uh, and the quote is, This is hell, I'm in hell. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about because this goes back to you know what you were saying? And I again, I think I one of the frustrations I have dealing with um, faithful cradle Catholics who are always faithful is the way they feel like it doesn't really matter, you know, you can be happy this way, you can be happy that way, and it really does matter, and, and you really can't be happy without God, and you can't, you as you mentioned already, you have no place to go with suffering, you have no place to go with um, the frustrations of life and the failures of life and so forth if you have no bigger context to understand where they're coming from, that they do have meaning, and that somehow it's all a a woven pattern by a loving God. So I'm talking instead of you, but so what's this, this is hell business?
1: Yeah, well, you know, I I think one of the very important things for me and why I think God, you know, wanted me to go through those years um, was that, you know, the the personal circumstances are kind of almost um, not important, but I was going through a very, very difficult time And, um, of course, if God isn't there, or if you can't recognize that God might be there, then you are in hell, you know, you really are. And, and I I quickly saw the flip side of that when I converted, you know, years later, and, um, and I would pray after communion, I, I got the same sense of this is heaven in the sense that, you know, you, you can't know the full reality, but you get this tiny glimpse of what heaven might mean. And, um, and to me, that's what that's why i know that there's a hell and i know that there's a heaven because i have had um i have had these tiny intimations of what it would be like to be in hell or to be in heaven so to me they're very very real it's it's almost like a continuum you know after you die you're kind of you're, you're in that place where there is no god or you know you're 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 traveling towards him or you're very near to him
0: yeah so um, you're held in an embrace of love with him yeah exactly if everything it goes right uh,
1: yeah. And I think so, people, sorry. Go ahead. Well, no, I think people, you know, because it, it's funny because um, actually tomorrow morning I start teaching catechism. So I'd like to ask everybody listening to say a little prayer <laughs> for me <laughs> because I'm teaching eight-year-olds. And um, I already had a mother stop me in the street and say, you know, what will you say to them about hell? You you know, you won't tell them to hell, surely. <laughs> you know, And, um, you know, it's such a shame that, that people can't recognize that, of course there's hell and there's nothing wrong with children knowing that because it's so easy to escape from hell. You know, it's so easy to, to run towards, towards God. And hell is such a reality.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So what happened? What ruined (laughs) this nice atheist British girl?
1: Yeah. Well, it was, yeah, it was a strange thing. I mean, I was, I was 39 and I was a mother and married and living near Rome. And, um, i was i'd I'd published a couple of books of poetry, but I was actually beginning a project with um with a doctor in London who I'd worked with because I used to be a nurse a long time ago, and we were writing a book about women's sexuality and it was supposed to be very edgy and cover everything under the sun um you know contraception abortion sex the whole lot and she was going to do the physiology, and I was going to do the social cultural historical aspect. And talked to lots of different women, and to kind of put this in context, um, we live very near to Rome, and my daughter had just begun preschool at a convent-run school, and I'd chosen the, this convent-run school because it was the best school in town. So, despite the fact it was Catholic, you know, I just wanted my daughter to be happy, and people had said, "Oh, it's it's such a nice school," so she was going there. But at the same time, this was 2010, and that was when the sexual abuse stories were coming out about the church. Um, you know in buckets and it was it was really disturbing I I hated the church never more had I had I hated the church Um, and as part of my research for this book about women I wanted to interview um, a Muslim woman and a Catholic woman and a lesbian woman and a prostitute and you know the whole kind of cross-section of women Um, and I could I could find non-religious women to talk to very very easily but when I came to, to talk to religious women, they they didn't want to talk to me. I had some, I still have got some very, very good Catholic friends. And these were American Catholics living near Rome. And our children played together. And when I said to them, you know, can I talk to you about, you know, sexuality, they would just, no, they, they wouldn't, uh, which I found very frustrating. Um, and I thought, well, you know, I'll find a nun to talk to, you know, I'll push it further. I'll get a nun because Rome is full of nuns but I didn't know how to find a nun. And, uh, but I knew a priest through a friend of mine, this girl, Christina, who now lives in Boston. And um, this priest, was about my age and everyone said he was really nice and really funny and I thought you know he's probably just just human he probably knows deep down that the church is vile you know I don't know (laughs) so I got his email address and I wrote to him and I said you know I'm writing a book about women's sexuality and um could you find me a nun to talk to (laughs) or what's the best way to go about it and he wrote back and he said he'd need to think about it but then I, because he was, you know, he was friendly and, and he very human. And I suddenly thought, you know, if he is funny and if he is human and if he is intelligent, which he obviously is, then I need to know, you know, what he's doing. <laughs> Why is he belonging to this, this church that's just disgusting? And I, I just thought perhaps now is my chance to ask somebody all the questions I've always wanted to ask. You know, it'd be like talking to somebody in the Nazi party, you know, <laughs> just... Mm-hmm. And so I wrote to him, and I said, you know, well, while you're thinking it over, can I just ask you some questions? And he said yes. And um, and then I really began, you know, battering him with emails. Um, you know, my big thing was, you know, if you if you were banking and you discovered that your bank had got links to the mafia, wouldn't you just change banks? You know, so now you know about all this abuse in the Catholic Church. Why don't you just change churches? You know, and how can you how can you belong? To an institution that that denies women equal rights, you know, because because women can't be priests, um, and the, you know, the list went on and on and on. And what surprised me was that he, you know, he argued back quite vociferously, and we argued and argued and argued by email for you know for quite a long time. We had a cup of tea at one point, which was you know basically okay, and um, we managed to be civil to each other, but it was. We were really fighting quite a lot by email. And then I think at a certain point, he almost got tired of it and he almost kind of withdrew. And I realized that something else was happening quite apart from the arguments, because he wasn't convincing me. I have to say whatever he was saying, and I don't remember much of it now. It didn't convince me at an intellectual level. But there was something that was happening in my head. And I was becoming more and more um, sort of disturbed and upset. And I couldn't really figure out why. And I wasn't sleeping. And and I, I, it's really, of course, it's impossible to explain because I think it's something very supernatural. Um, and I had terrible insomnia, really, really bad insomnia. Um, and after a while, I had the first kind of experience, which was the most almost low-key experience um, that I had, but it was incredibly important. I was reading something and I suddenly had this... Um, this insight into the fact that there could be a god and I you know I don't know how to explain that but you've got to understand that I had already interrogated um myself and done lots of reading and read about atheism and read about religion and I had never seen it that it was possible that there could be a god and I suddenly saw that there could be and I just remember this incredible feeling of of um possibility and potential um really odd really really odd it really kind of took the the lid off my head it was it was amazing and that was the first kind of step towards um towards my conversion but I think what's most interesting is that although I could see that there was a god I had no peace because it was a faceless god it was a god without attribute I had no way of knowing if it was a good god you know why? Why would it be a good God? You know because there was still so much suffering in the world. I had no. I had no theological background. I, I was not catechised. You know, I, I still didn't believe in in Jesus Christ as Son of God, so I had no peace. I just. I could just see that there was something, and it was something I had to pursue. Yeah. So, <laughs> you have to ask me the next question.
0: <laughs> how did you pursue it?
1: <laughs> well, well, um, yeah, a lot of a lot of not sleeping and a lot of. Um,
0: <laughs> a lot well, of I'll angst. make it easy. Uh, look, I mean, okay, I'll, I mean, okay. I'll just give you a little list of maybes. Uh, one is perhaps uh, your good Catholic friends and your interactions with them. Another is perhaps okay. your feeding. Yeah.
1: OK, OK. Well, at that point, this is why I think you know, it's, it's a very supernatural story. It's actually very interior, because at that point, no, the friends know. And, and Christina, my good friend, she, I did tell her, but she was brilliant. You know, I mean, she's a feisty one and she's an arguer and she's a debater. But when I told her, she, she wouldn't um, talk about it. She just said, I'm, she said, this isn't for me to talk about. You've got a lot of thinking to do. And she said, as long as you're talking to a good priest, then that's it. And she was so right to do that. Because I can tell you, and this is for everybody listening, they are trying to persuade people. Well, for me, it would never have worked. You know, someone, someone sitting you down and saying, oh, Sally, you know, now you believe in God. Let me show you the catechism. Let me try and get you into the church. There's no way I would have, I would have reacted in a good way. You know, so it was, it was nothing to do with that. It was nothing to do with anything human. And ditto the priest, Father Gregory, he just said, no one can convert you but Christ. He never tried to convert me you know and i think i really admire their faith because it was there was no sense that they were trying to do it they they truly believed that christ would do it
0: so and, was and, that attitude of theirs their confidence in the holy spirit or in christ was that in itself kind of uh, i don't want to say convincing to you but made you think um wow they must really believe this or something
1: well not not at a conscious level no i i don't know what i thought i was glad that they were not trying to kind of you know Um, sort of twist my arm. Um, I think that that was very wise of them, but um, not at a conscious level at all. I was just glad to kind of be left alone. And I did meet with Father Gregory, but we talked, we still argued because I thought to myself, you know, even if I end up becoming a Christian, there's no way in a thousand years I'll be a Catholic. So I was still arguing with him about Catholic doctrine and we would just laugh and, you know, talk and he was sympathetic and I would, you know, pull my hair out and I was having trouble you know, sorting out my thoughts, um, and there, there were many kind of well, many at that point. There were there were a couple of events which I can only describe as sort of mystical experiences, and and the one that really um, that settled everything to an extent was um, well, it settled everything. Was I went I was I was going into this little uh, Carmelite church near my daughter's school every day, and um, and I, I wasn't praying because I I. I'd never prayed and I didn't know how to pray. And I would just go and sit in this church and just try and think. And and one day I was in there and um, and very kind of upset and, and um, my thoughts were very, you know, unclear and I was very sort of in, in anguish, really. And um, I was crying and I looked up and there was this stained glass window of Christ's face. And I said aloud, um, if you're there, you have to help me. And there was this experience of of almost being lifted up I mean physically my tears just completely stopped I felt this incredible presence I mean inc- incredible just re- so real so real and I knew it was Christ there was no question in my mind at all and it was the turning point of, of everything
0: wow.
1: absolutely and then from that point um, I prayed the our Father um, and knew that I was a Christian and then it was the question of well, which church do I belong to? Of course. And, of, and you know, I was even, well, you know, do I have to belong to a church? Because I was, you know, at that point as well, praying, uh, my prayer life was so incredibly intense. You know, just this, this presence, you know, like nothing you can, you can imagine. You know, the consolations and graces of those first sort of weeks. It was so incredible that I almost thought, well, do I have to go to church? Surely it's not even necessary. And then there's the the piece in in Matthew about praying alone in secret, right? And I thought, well, you know, (laughs) that'll do me. But something kind of drove me. Um, I just kept thinking there's something else. There's something else. And I thought about um, uh, joining the Anglican Church in Rome. I thought about joining the Quakers. Um, Lots of different things. But I realized I had lots of reading to do. And so... The summer of 2010 i i started reading um and i read I, I didn't want to read anything about something i wanted to read the original texts so i read the gospels and i read um you know saint augustine and thomas aquinas you know the absolute even though it was hard i mean thomas aquinas was you know incredibly hard um i wanted to read stuff that was absolutely from the fundament of the church and so at the beginning of that summer, I was still very kind of anti-Catholic. But by the end of the summer, I realized almost, you know, you know, again, no one told me this. I, I didn't. I didn't. I knew about the Eucharist and, and I knew about transubstantiation and I believed it. I could see that that was the case. It was really odd. I, I just knew that was the case. And I, I didn't yet know about the tabernacle and and the host being in the tabernacle. It sounds crazy, but, I, you know, why would I know? And. Um, but I kind of knew that there was something in Catholic churches that wasn't in any, any other church. And I, and I just knew I had to get close to it. And so by the end of that summer, I just knew that if I wanted to be close to Christ, I had to be Catholic. There was just no other way, because to me, I'm, you know, I'm still, you know, this is the way I am. I'm completely Eucharistic. You know, I have to be close to Christ. Mm -hmm. And to me, the greatest gift that we have is communion. And, you know, just the idea of going to a church where that wasn't there, I, I would find that, you know, very difficult.
0: At what point, this may be an unanswerable question, but at what point did you make the connection between the Eucharist and the real presence of Christ?
1: Well, I, th- I think it was, it was that summer when I, um, I was in London, actually, and I was looking for a church to go to and I knew it had to be a Catholic church. So it sounds kind of strange because I, I didn't know about the tabernacle, but I knew that I knew I could sense this presence in a Catholic church. It's hard to remember, actually, when I figured out that the real presence.
0: Well, let me ask it a different way then, uh, which is how come you didn't, weren't dying to receive the Eucharist if you made that equation, had already made that equation? Wouldn't you want to receive well, I, communion?
1: Yeah, I did. It slid over, it slid over to that very quickly because I, I was already making a spiritual communion. That okay. sacrament. So yeah, quickly it became like you know I have to receive, and that that was why I was in such a hurry to convert because um, I, I I emailed the priest in in the March of 2010, mm-hmm. and by December I was a Catholic. In in December I became Catholic. So you see, it was very quick, and the the rush for me was that I really wanted to receive communion. I just I just couldn't bear to be at the mass any longer and not be able to do that. Wow. Yeah. So that, um, that's the other thing they're you know, teaching. Sorry, go ahead. Go
0: ahead. It's oh, your I was show. Say
1: teaching, teaching catechism. Oh, you broke up slightly. What did you say?
0: I said it's your show. <laughs> go ahead.
1: Okay. <laughs> well, you know, teaching catechism, which is on my, my mind, as you can tell, um, you know, because I'm teaching Italian children, because I still live near Rome, you know, I want to be able to tell them, you know, because to them, there are Catholic churches everywhere and, and they're just. They do kind of take it for granted. And, you know, it's not to be taken for granted. Because, you know, I, I grew up in a country where the churches are mostly Protestant, and there's a very different vibe walking into a Protestant church. And there really is. Yeah. So, and this is the thing I think, you know, that people overlook is that the sacraments, you know, they're so important. They're so incredibly important. You know, they're, they're God's way of reaching down to us. And I think the problem we have now is that we've, we've just, we take them so much for granted
0: yeah that well that's why i do what i do is because that's the danger of being a cradle catholic is is kind of being oblivious to the um unique role of the catholic church and that unique role is defined largely around the sacraments whenever i'm doing um i don't want to call it apologetics but whenever you know i'm dealing with you know somebody who's jewish or protestant and is full of um I tend to say, I don't know if I'm allowed to say legitimate criticism of the Catholic Church, but certainly legitimate criticism of behavior of individuals who purport to represent the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Um, and they say, like what people said to you, you know, sort of how can, you know, how can you root for this team, essentially? How can you align yourself, you know, with this institution where there's all this evil being done? Um, what I always fall back on is the sacraments, because the sacraments are the supernatural mechanism which God provided for humanity to provide the greatest possible intimacy between God and man, between birth and death. It's very simple. And mm-hmm. and those sacraments require the uh, apostolic succession. They require, essentially, the Catholic Church. Um, the sacraments are kind of the bedrock. For me, they're the bedrock of apologetics for Catholicism.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, the Catholic Church, you know, is made up of human beings as, you know, and people make mistakes and people do terrible things. But I'm always so glad that we have the Catholic Church, we have the magisterium and we have tradition because I think, we're, you know, we're very lucky to have that. I think religion goes awry when we get away from that, you know, when there, when there aren't those things, those unchanging truths and those that, that safeguarding. I think that's a big problem.
0: Yeah, there yeah. has to be authority in order to yeah. to have that assured con- continuity. But since we're kind of talking about sacraments, um, I, I do like putting my guests on the spot, and I'm going to put you on the spot. Um, tell me, I, I guess I'll just go through them sort of one by one. First of all, I, I don't know enough about your history. Had you been baptized before you were brought into the Catholic Church?
1: Yeah, ironically I was, and I'll tell you why. Um because in, in Britain, when I was born, um, it was still a country that was, um, you know, a, a bit religious and people had to be baptized to do things like going to teacher training. So my, my mom had wanted to be a teacher at one point and she couldn't do it because she hadn't been baptized. So she vowed that she'd get us all baptized so we had all the right paperwork and, you know, had, she wanted to do the, the right thing. So, yes, I was baptized
0: so I can't ask you about your experience of your baptism, since you don't remember <laughs> it, presumably. Uh let me ask you about your experience of your first confession then.
1: Yeah, yeah, that was um, <laughs> always an interesting one. <laughs> um yeah, it was um I found it Yeah. I mean it was it was wonderful. It was strange because, you know, how do you confess a lifetime of sin? It's um it's all you know, almost impossible. You have to just kind of say, you know, everything I've got, take everything I've got. But I think what really, really stunned me about my first confession was you know, this incredible relief and this incredible mercy. You know, really, there were there were things, I'm sure that everybody has things in their life that, that are big, um, that they carry around with them with a certain amount of guilt and regret. And um, I felt just incredibly relieved once I'd confessed and just so aware of God's love and so aware of the mercy of the church you know as an instrument of God you know it was really amazing um and yeah I think confession is something you know we all struggle with to some degree and I think it can vary so much with the confessor but it's good to remember that first occasion when I was just so aware of of God's incredible mercy. Did you cry? No, I didn't cry, strangely enough. No, no. And I think, you know, part of that was I was very prepared for it. And um, and I had talked over some of the issues with the priest that was converting me. And I didn't confess to him because he wanted me to go to somebody else I didn't know at all. And mm-hmm. just kind of have a different experience with, you know, just with a com- as mostly happens, you tend to go to people that you don't know as friends. Cause, you know,
0: Especially if care. you really have something to confess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah. Uh, so so yeah so i'd, I'd yeah. kind of like kind of been through stuff in in my head already and i i didn't cry i felt kind of um oh, i don't know oh, i think i kind of hurried through it really i think is the, is the answer which is very poetic i hurried through it and um he told me to read some very very good books um which were absolutely the right things to tell me to read and yeah, I still think about that confession. If you get a wise confessor, you, you remember things that they say for, for a very long time.
0: Yes. And and ideally it's the Holy Spirit speaking through the confessor. So they may not yeah. they may be wiser than they know, so to speak.
1: Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. Um what about um the first time you had the infinite privilege of receiving the Eucharist.
1: Yeah, that was um yeah (laughs) amazing really I mean it was it felt like a continuation of the experience I'd had in in the Carmelite church when I felt this presence kind of come down and it felt you know and it still does actually often feel like a real embrace it's something so physical you know that's what I I remember that first time very much as kind of stillness and kind of an embrace Um, and still then and, and the Today, you know, reflecting on on experiences with communion, I sometimes want to ask other Catholics about this. And perhaps a radio show is not the right time or place. But, <laughs> but you know, I just wondered. You know, I find it very physical. It's so it never, never ceases to amaze me. I mean, not not every time, but um, it's something mm. that affects your heart. You know, your blood. It's it's everything, isn't it? So, yeah. hi uh, Yeah. I suppose it's different for everybody. I'm a very physical person. You know, I, I, I somatize. I feel things in my body very easily. So I think God reaches me in a very physical way.
0: Um, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the radio, neither is the radio a place to play spiritual director. But um, the um, it is not uncommon for uh, their, oh gosh, this sounds kind of creepy, but, um, you know, all of life is a progressive, um, you know, growing together with God. And there are stages on that progression which are consistent with <laughs> with spiritual consolation and, and a very immediate sense of the presence of God and consolation with the Eucharist and so forth. And you also have this dreaded, like, dark night of the soul. I think yesterday was the feast day of St. Teresa of Avila, Right. Um, so I guess really what I'm saying is that over the course of your life, they'll probably God will lead you through different stages and it probably won't always be this experience.
1: Yeah, no, I guess that <laughs> Um,
0: because I had, I mean, um, well, I'm a convert too. And, and, um, I would say the hardest part wasn't losing that honeymoon period the hardest part was misinterpreting the loss of that honeymoon period. To think that I had done something wrong and been rejected by God or something like that. That's actually what made it hard. Um, that was much harder than, actual, than simply the absence of the intense spiritual consolation.
1: Yeah, yeah. But
0: you're, oh, yeah. I'm sure you have real spiritual directors to talk to. Let me read a quote from Herman Cohen, who is, another, who is a Jewish convert. Uh, hero of mine, his his story is in uh, Honey from the Rock, which is another book I wrote of witness testimonies. But um, anyway, he had for tr- all his life. He had tr- after his conversion. He had tremendous uh, spiritual consolation from the Eucharist, and uh, so I'll just read two sentences from his hymn. Oh Jesus, my love, no greater happiness can exist than that which I experience in loving you in the Eucharist and in receiving you in my poor heart. So rich because of you! What delicious peace! What happiness! What holy joy! Um, and yes, that's that's. Um, uh, I, I well, I, I won't, I won't, uh, I won't, I won't look for these other uh, quotes from other converts, but I think it is, it is a, a particular. I don't want to say a gift of, of being a convert, but it's something that is much more typical when people either have a reversion to the faith or a conversion to the faith to um, you know receive such such sensible consolation from um, from the Eucharist.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I read um, there's a, there's a wonderful book called um, I Love Jesus in the Night about uh, Mother Teresa, and it, you know, it's shocking to learn that her dark night lasted for. I think I'm right in saying something like 30 years, you know, she had incredible sort of mystical um, and and consoling experiences at the very beginning. And then, you know, nothing, absolutely nothing. She, she just, she had no sense of the presence at all. And there's even a story in that book, um, which is written by father, Paul Murray, um, about her in adoration with all of her nuns. And she wrote something on a piece of paper and kind of sent it up to the priest at the front And on the piece of paper was just written, where is Jesus? You know, she just felt this incredible absence. And it was almost a secret until after she died. And so she, you know, she had incredible faith because she didn't have those, you know, those mystical experiences through most of her life.
0: Yeah. St. Therese of Lisieux um, had a lot of, earlier had a lot of consolation and prayer. And she consciously and willingly offered it up to god uh, and said basically take it away from me and use it for the conversion of people who don't know you yeah so then her last years were in a complete absence of a sensible awareness of god because she had consciously given it up for the conversion of others
1: yeah yeah i guess we know we have to be prepared for the dark night hey
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, uh yes hope- but we also have to i mean the the key thing is, so to speak is, is to not misinterpret it. Um, yeah. and, and yeah. Because that's the other thing. The devil is always there, you know, whispering in your ear, you know, Oh, this is cause you blew it or whatever. And, you know, or you were imagining all of that or anything else. Yeah. Um, but I'll, like, since you're on the spot already, I'll keep you on the spot a little bit. Um, I, I would imagine that you also, at, at least at times have sensible, technical term for it is consolation, in other words, you know, feelings of love, feelings of peace, feelings of being loved, feelings of embrace, um, in the presence of exposition of the Blessed Sacrament?
1: Yeah, yeah. In fact, um, I was very, very lucky because recently, um, it was actually in 2013, um, the nuns at the convent where my daughter is at school set up adoration on a Thursday. And um, I kind of did it with them. We kind of organized it together. And so every Thursday I spent at least a couple of hours in adoration. And, you know, really, I miss it so much. I was thinking recently, you know, how much I miss it. And I think it's a strange thing because um, you're adoring Christ, right? And yet looking back, it feels like um, I, I was experiencing so much of the Father. It's really odd, it feels like God communicated so much to me as I was, when I was there, I, I should add, I mean, there was a reason behind this. I was, um, I was translating the diary of the blessed Maria Crocifissa Corcho, who's, um, a beatified nun who was the founder of my daughter's school. And she loved the Eucharist. She was crazy for the Eucharist. You know, she, um, she would get up in the middle of the night to go and, and sit by the tabernacle. And she was, she was a mystic. And, um, I translated her diary, and the nun who asked me to do it kind of set up adoration um, to, I think, kind of almost revive that that contemplative, mystical aspect in the in the, in the congregation. And um, so I was involved in that work, and I was adoring Christ, and under the altar, this blessed nun. Her, her incorrupt body is in a glass coffin. So it was very intense. You know, it was really <laughs> odd because I, I could pray, you know, with her and for her and we'd both pray to Christ. And you know, it was a really, really strange and, and lovely, lovely time.
0: Wow.
1: And I miss the adoration because it's actually stopped because the nuns have kind of had a reorganization and they're adoring alone in their congregation. And so I, the, the public aren't, aren't in, in it so much. And I miss that
0: yeah.
1: very much indeed.
0: And there's uh, there's no way to establish any um, to lobby for for some kind of public uh, exposition.
1: Yeah, I think that there is. It's just always a question because of you know with with work and being a mum. Mm-hmm. I go to mass every morning, and um, that's actually happened in the last eighteen months that yeah. I go to mass every morning, which is fantastic. I'm very pleased to be able to do that, and I need to kind of get in some adoration there as well at the same time.
0: Yeah, well.
1: <laughs> but I've got to work.
0: We, um, I'll, I'll have one last, uh, putting you on the spot because of course this is Radio Maria and, uh, I am sure there's a little story of your, um, I hate the word, but journey with Mary, uh, your relationship with Mary.
1: Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, it's really odd because, um, and I write about this in, in my book as well because Mary is somebody who's accompanied me really oddly all the way through my life, because I've always been obsessed with with, um, paintings and images of the Madonna, always. It's been a a constant theme through my life. I've been very, very attracted to, you know, it was hard to say what it was. I I wondered if it was Renaissance art, Then I thought it was Byzantine art. And, you know, I could never really understand. Um, But I was very kind of just fascinated by her face, and then I then I thought she was just a victim of of the patriarchal church because she was this silenced woman. Um, and I wrote about Mary as a poet. I wrote poems about the Annunciation, and there were there was a lot of Madonna type imagery in my poetry. And and yet, through those months of conversion, she was very silent. I wasn't really conscious of Mary. I was so taken up with Christ. You know, I I, I didn't really think about Mary much. Um, and then when I started to pray the rosary, sort of later on in that year, I began to walk with her and I realized that she'd been a presence in my life, you know, from right from the beginning, long before I converted. I realized that that kind of co- constant devotion that I had to, to art, I you know, for years as a, as a woman in my twenties, I had a picture of the Madonna in my room, which seemed, you know, is astounding for an atheist. And my parents could not understand it. They thought it was really odd. And, um, I I had no explanation for it. I just, I just found her a very comforting presence. And I think that she really kind of led me by the hand and watched over me. And I think things could have gone much, much worse as an atheist than they did. And I suspect that I was, you know, being protected in some measure by her. No,
0: no doubt. And what about um, the role of Mary in your spirituality now and the role of the rosary?
1: Yeah, well, I pray the rosary every day. And... um it's, uh, it's a discipline. I think it is so important because, it, you know, it keeps you focused. And, it, and again, it, you know, it really symbolizes the church in, in general that, you know, without these prayers and without these things, we, we risk drifting into particular areas or focusing on something, at, you know, at the expense of something else. And the rosary is just such a good grounding on going through the mysteries and going through everything in a balanced way. Um, I find it just very, very grounding extremely grounding and and it's so powerful. It has such results. Oh my goodness, the untire of knots. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> you know. I mean uh, seriously, you know, it's it's amazing.
0: So what's no. the untire of knots? I'm getting you started.
1: I, you I know. Well, the, the this is the devotion that Francis is particularly am um, fond of and um well, gosh, I can't remember the whole story in detail, but it's, it's it surrounds a picture that was painted um hundreds of years ago of Mary um, untying knots on, in long ribbons and the idea is that she's untying the knots in our lives and it particularly relates to marriages and dif- difficulties in marriages but it doesn't have to be marriages and um, and you do a novena, um, a nine day novena and each day you focus on Mary untying the knot that you give her um, and you know really it's, it's the most astonishing results actually you know the last one I did was lovely because it was a particular thing I was very very worried about and I prayed the novena and I didn't really feel any different. And it was around, I think it was in March. And on the Feast of the Annunciation, I suddenly was like, wow, it went. <laughs> you know? mm. it, it, just, it had just gone. And it's, it's very powerful because it requires lots of meditation and focus and trust. It's really about handing your life over.
0: Mm. Well, we've come to the end of our uh, previous interview with the author, poetess and a convert from atheism, Sally Reed. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. Her first book, which is the one she discussed in the 2015 interview that we were just listening to, is published by Ignatius Press. It's called Night's Bright Darkness, A Modern Conversion Story. And it's widely available, of course, since it is Ignatius Press. And her uh, new book, which is just coming out now from ignatius press also is called annunciation a call to faith in a broken world and we discussed that book at some length in our recent uh, uh, interview program with her about two weeks ago so it would have been in late july on radio maria i recommend both of them i have a particular fondness of course for witness testimonies slash conversion stories and her uh, night's bright darkness her conversion story is a very very beautiful example of such so anyway we've come to the end of our time for the show you're listening to roy showman on radio maria on the show jesus the promised messiah of judaism every Uh, week at this time and place, and I hope you join us again next week for Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.